0: One of the ways I try to observe if the spirit is at work in our church during during worship, there's a number of different ways I try to observe that. But there was one way that was really clear this morning is that while we were praying for students, I just happened to look around, and this was a clear indication the spirit is with us, is Adam, who was on the piano, was playing piano like this. Now, either he's, he's channeling his Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles or the spirit. I was like, this dude is playing the piano, eyes closed. So then I really started to pay attention. To Let me see if he messes up. And I was like, and he ain't skipping beat. And then eventually he opened his eyes, so I thought oh, he probably was about to mess up right there. So, so the spirit is at work, and if the spirit is at work, you can play the piano with your eyes closed to the glory of God. Students, I hope you feel encouraged. It's, it's kind of awkward when they, people tell you to stand and they want to pray for you. I don't know what it is. Prayer sometimes can seem awkward. You ever had someone say to you, like, hey, how can I pray for you? And you have no idea what to say. You ever had that happen? Like, that's so awkward. Like, why is it awkward when people say they want to pray for you? It's always like, oh, man, let me think of, okay, yeah, there's a bunch of things. Uh, let me get back to you. When Mike and I, when we go sometimes to restaurants, Michael talk to the, the waitress, or waiter, and say, we're going to pray for our food. Can we pray for you? And almost... To the letter people are like oh that would be great um let me get back to you (laughs) and then almost always they rarely get back to us but we we pray for them anyway but prayer is a good thing so if you got prayed for this morning don't feel awkward it's from the lord it actually is from the lord all right we're going to continue in our series in romans so you can go to chapter four And I want to read the passage today. We're going to do a couple different things this morning because I think the argument that is being made here would be helpful for us if we go back to the original scene and sort of see the trajectory of Abraham and his story. So we're going to have brief snapshots of his story. We did look at two of those passages last week in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And we'll look at two more, a couple more passages briefly. Just read those so that when we go back into the passage that we're going to talk about today, will have some at least visual aid of what is being talked about. So I want to read this and then I want to say something about, about passages like these. So I'm reading from the Christian standard Bible CSB reading Romans chapter four, beginning in verse nine, ending at verse 16. And I quote, is this blessing only for the circumcised then? or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. It's a lot of circumcision in this passage. (laughs) For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that, by, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. I want to say something about passages like these before we jump into this. Many of us, Many of us, as we read this, if you're not familiar, if you're not, many of us read the Bible like this. What does it, is it new and what does it do? Or is it new to me and what does it do for me or tell me to do? Many of us approach the Bible looking for specific things that it tells us we must do after we read it, and if we read a Bible and we don't find anything that seems overtly applicable, it's almost as if, well, what's the point of reading the Scriptures if I'm not walking away from the passage or what I read with something that's life-changing based on how I process and how I feel? Let me tell you one problem with approaching the Bible that way. This is still the word of God, and sometimes God is not as concerned with the three points of application that we're going to walk away from. There are times when, if you think about the Bible and what it represents, many of us have grown up in the church or been around Christianity long enough that you've read stories over and over again, and by God's grace, there are moments when you see something you've never saw before, and that's great. But many of the times, and if you think about the reason why God allowed his word to be written down instead of, Instead of passed down through oral stories, through just stories it become fables, that become myths, like the telephone game that change over time. The reason why it's captured like this is not because what you read isn't supposed to feel new to you all the time. It's supposed to be true to you all the time. Even if it doesn't tell you to do something all the time, we're supposed to take this and think, okay, whatever categories, whatever I believe, the word of God often will deepen that belief. And there are times where we need to understand things that are outside of our normal way of living the Christian life or thinking a certain way in order for us to see the magnitude of who God is. God is greater than sort of our is this new and what do we do? He's greater than what's happening in our 21st century culture. He's greater than our doubts and beliefs. He's greater than our joys and our pains. And sometimes he gives us things in our word that when we read them, we think this is insane. I don't even I can't even spell circumcision, let alone understand what it is. So wrapped up in so many of these phrases that you already think, well, this sermon, I'm not going to get anything out of. So let me check out. Let me challenge you to check in not because I'm preaching but because the word of god has something significant to say and it may not be wow this was a new thought it may just be this deepens something that i've already known a lot of what happens over time in the christian life is you learn something you learn it and then you go a level deeper and then you learn it again and you go a level deeper and you learn it again and you go a level deeper and by deeper i don't mean with new thoughts i mean with new faith with new faith The reason why we read the Bible every, you know, we could do, I could do every week. All right, let's do uh, seven lessons from Aretha Franklin's funeral. (laughs) And I assure you this morning, there are people, pastors in churches, I know of some, who will teach messages like that. If I do that in this church and I'm serious, fire me. Fire me. And if you're listening and you, if you're listening online and you go to a church like that, or you're pastor, if you're listening, pastor, and you preach like that, quit. We're supposed to <laughs> preach. We preach the Bible, right? Jesus, Jesus died and established over time a Bible that he wants us to learn. So uh, we don't need lessons from culture on how to be godly. We need lessons from God on what godliness means. And so a passage like this upon reading, it doesn't strike you as something that you would probably meditate on in your own time, right? You would want to go to one of the stories, the gospels and something amazing or some miracle or how did Jesus do that? When you read this, you think, man, it's gonna be a long morning. (laughs) Well, I say good because if it deepens your understanding, then it deepens your faith. That when someone or trial or suffering comes, your commitment to the Lord is deepened, not by how easy or how many trials you don't receive, but by how deep you believe in God when those trials come to you. And so passages like this deepen our understanding of who God is and what God's done from the old to the new. So this morning, we're going to jump into a passage like this that's clunky, that does not relate to us, that does not speak in phrases that we talk in, but it doesn't have to. By God's grace, we'll understand this a little bit better and deepen our knowledge. If you don't walk away with three things that you must do differently or something new, that's not the point. But if you walk away with a little bit of a deeper understanding of what God has done and what that means for you today, then you got it. You get the point, whether it's in a Sunday morning or if it's on a Tuesday morning or afternoon or evening when you're reading on your own. Amen. Amen. All right. We read the scene that we're going to look at today. Our passage will be Romans 4, 9 through 16. Now we need to do something different. We're going to back up a little bit and go to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. This will be easy whether you have an actual Bible or Bible app because it's the first book of the Bible. You just flip to the front and Bible app is a couple of clicks and you'll be there. We're going to Genesis 12. We're going to look at some snapshots of Abraham's life before we come back to this passage because this passage is making a point, and this is basically the point that Paul is trying to make. He's asking this question, big picture, here's the question, on what basis, on what basis is a person accepted by God? That's the point that he's asking. That's the question he's asking, on what basis are you accepted by God? On what basis? On what basis are you accepted by God? And he's talking to a specific group of people who have different answers to that question. And in this passage, he's talking to the Jews who would say based on their Abraham circumcision and their obedience to what is called the law. And the law is simply for those of you who may not be as familiar with the law, just Think of the Ten Commandments. They would say I'm accepted by God because we have the 10 commandments, we do the 10 commandments and we've circumcision, which is 8 days old as a baby, cutting off a piece of the male anatomy, that was a sign that God said these people are in a relationship with me. And they're saying that's the basis of our acceptance to God. Do I is that do, do I Okay, it might be me. It might be me. I'm starting this like RoboCop for a minute, for those of you who know what that is. Or like that, uh, for a second, I remember when that thing, that car alarm used to be like, uh, uh, "Protected by Viper stand back." That's what I felt like. It's probably me. It's the dry cleaning on the shirt, the starch. Yeah, pull it out. All right, that's better. Leave it right here. So I'm sitting. All right, let's go to Genesis 12. A little loud. Clog your ears up. All right, here we go. Put your hands over your ears. It'll sound fantastic. All right. I will talk lower. Well, this is where I need raised voice. Let me get that Roger affirmative. All right. In Genesis 12, we're going to turn to. And the Lord said. See? <laughs> and look, and everyone heard him, too. Everyone was like, wow, Genesis. All right, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, here we go. Verses 1 through 7. First snapshot we see in the Bible of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So this is our first introduction to Abraham. God tells him, get up from where you are and go to this other land. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm gonna do, this is Abraham, 75 years old. Now, this isn't superhuman 75 years old. Sometimes you hear people in the Bible, they to be like 920 years old. So you think they were probably in immaculate shape until about 815 years old. Abraham was le- 75 years old legitimately, like the way we would look right now. So some events go by. Some time passes, and we get to Genesis 15. And the events are simply, he goes to the land, his nephew Lot is kidnapped, he goes back to rescue his nephew and get back all the people that were kidnapped with him, and then he meets up uh, with some kings and pays um, some tribute to a a king called Mechizedek, who was the king of Jerusalem, king of Salem. And then we get to chapter 15, and it says this in verses 1 through 6. After these events, the ones I just said, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse six, Abraham believed believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. All right. So here's what happened. God tells Abraham, have a conversation in a vision. God tells Abraham he's going to bless him. But Abraham's concerned because he has no heir, no child, no son to take up his family name. So how is this blessing going to take place? Because I have no son. That literally comes from me. I only have a son. That's, that's not my son, and he's going to have to be the one that's my son. Abraham's 75 years old, or a little bit after that. So he has no confidence, not that he doesn't have confidence, he believes God, but he's wondering how is this going to happen. So God tells him, look, that is not going to be your heir, the, your son that comes from you. He's not going to be the one that the promises come through. You're going to have one that comes from your own body. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, chapter 16, we see Abraham slips up. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 15 to 16. Verses 1 through 5. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. All right, so if Abraham was 75 when he left Canaan, now he's 85. It's 10 years later. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant when she saw that she, when she, saw that she was pregnant. Her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. I'd love to do a talk on marriage and conflict right here about this particular passage, but that's not what the passage is about this morning. That is interesting. She said, the Lord judge between me, it's your fault. Okay. All right, look at verse 15 and 16. I'm not going to touch it. So Hagar, there's some husbands like, man, go ahead, go ahead. All right, so Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael to him. So here it is, 11 years later, after God promised him. This is important to know because sometimes we read the Bible as if it's one day and then day two and then day three. And then we think, man, how could he believe? How could he do that? God told him he was going to bless him. Well, God hadn't appeared to Abraham for at least 11 years. If I promise you to give you back. Me and Sheila have had this ongoing joke for years. We don't joke about it as much now because she hurt me. But (laughs) me and Sheila, for years, had this joke. She gave us some Tupperware, and I just forgot to give it back. And so for five years, it caused a a, a fake rift in our relationship. I'm I'm her little brother. I'm the thorn in her flesh every time we do a wedding together. But I love Sheila. But we we still joke about this. I forgot to give her her Tupperware. That was just five years. Afterwards, she said, you know what, don't even, don't even mention, tupperware. don't even use the word letter T around me. I don't even want to, so I have to be careful. When I say duh, I say he and hope that she gets it in context. I don't even <laughs> use the word T around, Sheila, because that, that was five years I didn't give her Tupperware. This is 11 years that Abraham has not heard from God, right? There are times that we struggle with things and it's only been a couple of minutes or a couple of days. Abraham is a man of faith, but he hasn't heard from God for 11 years, So after 10 of those years, his wife said, look, uh, nothing's going on with me. So if this promise is going to come through, it's going to come through you doing this with her. And So Abraham's 86 years old and his son is born. We go to chapter 17, and this is the chapter, chapter 15 and chapter 17 of the chapters in contention for our passage today. Here's what happens in chapter 17. Now look at this, look at the time frame. When Abram was 99 years old. So he meets God 24 years ago. God doesn't talk to him for 11 years, right? Then he has a son that he wasn't supposed to have in that way. Then God shows up 13 years later. Okay, so make sure you understand. When you read the Bible, don't think it's day, Monday and then Tuesday Abraham did this and then Wednesday the Lord showed up. Nah, this is... If you tell me something 24 years ago, I don't even like you. If you told me you're going to give me something from 24 years ago, we're no longer friends. So here is Abram, 24 years after first meeting the Lord, haven't heard in years from God, over a decade. This is intentional. God put this in his word as intentional to show us that this is how God works. Sometimes God promises things and we want them to be as quick as we get our iPhone notifications. And sometimes God says, yeah, I got you, but it might take a couple of years. It might take longer than you. So where is your faith? So here he says in, in chapter 17, and this is the point of contention for our passage today primarily. He says this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am, I am God almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you that you will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. Let me just stop here for a second just to highlight one point that I'm not going to accentuate because that's not the passage this morning. This is a, Think about what's happening. Abraham believed God has credited him as righteousness. Abraham, in effect, sins by having sex with Hagar so that he can have the promise be fulfilled. And then God still sees Abraham as righteous and then makes the covenant with Abraham to confirm that God sees him as righteous. You know who else he does that with? The people who are righteous in this room who believe in Jesus. So when you struggle, when you fall, God doesn't take the righteousness that you have by faith in Jesus Christ away. He promised. He makes a covenant with Abraham after he sins, after this. That's not the message today. Let me keep going. Verse seven, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Verse nine, God also said to Abraham, as for you, You and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Each one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's an important statement, which we're going to look at in, in chapter four. It's a very important statement to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision is a sign. It's not the actual covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. The covenant isn't circumcision. It's a sign of the covenant for God to say, I'm going to be your God and the God of your people. Verse 12, throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is also an important point. God is saying to him, look, even if they're not born in your household, but they're bought, if they're male, they have to be circumcised. So even those who were not coming from you literally still share in this covenant that I have with you. They must be circumcised because that circumcision is a demonstration of faith. So God says, my covenant will be with you. All right. That's the overall scene of Abraham, part of it. And this is the point of contention that Paul's asking this question. On what basis, on what basis is a person accepted by God? Now, he's answered the question in Romans 1, 16 to 17. When he said the righteous will live by faith and the rest of the chapter, the rest of what he's doing is making that the case by showing how faith is the only possible way that this can happen. But he knows that people have been living a certain way for a long time and they have to be convinced. So he goes deeper. So he asks this question in verse nine. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. So the blessing that he's talking about is in verses 6 through 8. Let's read that again real quick from last week. Here's the blessing he's referring to. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. So here's what he's asking in verse 9. The blessing is that God will not count your sins against you. Even though you know you failed, you know you've sinned, God will not count your sins against you. So then, and what was the basis of that? That's a blessing. That's a blessing. That is a huge blessing. So he's saying, what's what's the reason for that? Is this blessing only for those who have been circumcised like Abraham? Is it only for those? The answer, he says No. Is it for the circumcised, those who actually uh, had their foreskin cut, or is it for the uncircumcised, people who haven't? Who's this blessing, this forgiveness of sin for? That's what it means to be accepted by God. Your sins are forgiven by God. On what basis are your sins forgiven by God? Every one of us, when we die, every one of us, when we die, will be guilty in the actual sense of committing sin. Every one of us. So then on what basis will God look at you when you die, and you'll be terrified, will be terrified looking at him. On what basis does he say, Come into the kingdom? Come into the kingdom. And maybe even, hopefully, well done, thy good and faithful servant. On what basis? So he's speaking of that forgiveness of sin, and he's making a point. For we say Abraham was credited with faith. That's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Then he says in verse 10, in what way was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He's asking questions for people who think one way, there's only one way, and they've always believed this to be true. It's almost like, almost, I'm not saying Judaism was a cult, that's all I'm saying, but it's almost like, you ever watch someone come out of a cult? And then when you watch and you watch the reenactment or watch what they heard and believed, and you think, man, that is insane. How could you believe that? What were you thinking? But for them, that was the only thing they could see until something changed for them. Maybe they escaped or something happened and they, they snap out of it. But some of them are, are, are damaged irreparably. Just being in there, thinking this certain way for this long damaged them. And it took a lot of convincing. It took a lot. Well Paul was speaking to people who have thought a certain way for 1500 or so years give or take a couple hundred and he's trying to convince them that's the wrong way to think we got to change now things have changed Jesus came things have changed things have changed so he's asking this question for we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness was it credited When he was circumcised or before it? It's an important question. This is the point that he's trying to make, that circumcision had nothing to do with God's acceptance of Abraham. It wasn't. It wasn't after he got circumcised. God said he was righteous before, even though Abraham fell after that and tried to have a child outside of the will of God for his life. And God still says, I've accepted him because he had faith. He believed me. You see, God accepts genuine faith. And you know what else God knows about genuine faith? Because we're human. Genuine faith is not flawless faith. Genuine faith from God in people still sin. Sinning is not necessarily a rejection of genuine faith. The pursuit of sin, the desire to sin, and the joy that comes from it, the lack of conviction, that's different. And even that baby knows that. (laughs) That's different. There's a difference. This is what he's saying in verse 11. And he received a sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had while still having faith. The word seal is an important word. Seal is used. When we did the Revelation series, we heard this word seal. Seals, he opened the seals. And one of them said God had put his seal on his, on his people. This word seal is significant. And there's, I, I looked this up in this, uh, in this evangelical dictionary of biblical theology, and, I, and I, I, I never do this, I never read it, but I thought what was said right here was so important, I wanted to read it as it was said. And there's one part that's more important to me than others, but I want to read this in context, all right? Because here's a question I wanted to know. If the seal for him was circumcision, the New Testament tells us that the seal is the Holy Spirit, right? We have the Holy Spirit. The seal is the Holy Spirit for the New Testament believer. For Abraham, it was circumcision until Christ came. When Christ comes and then dies and then resurrects, it's the spirit is now the seal. The seal is just a guarantee that you belong to the person who sealed you. That's what it means. The seal is like a almost like like being branded. You belong to this person. You know what kind of shoes you have on by what? The logo. That's the seal. If you're wearing Nikes, I know because you got the little sign, the swoosh sign. Now, they could be fake Nikes, so they could be Fikes. But I'm saying at least we know that that's it. The seal proves who you belong to. So in the New Testament, God tells us the seal is the Holy Spirit. But here's the question. How do we know that we have that seal? Though? How do we know that we have that? Many of us do not feel, like many of us think the seal makes us feel like a superhero, right? It doesn't. The Spirit, sometimes, we don't feel like he's, we don't know where he is sometimes. So how do you know you have the seal of the Holy Spirit if you can't always tangibly feel him? Is a question I was asking as I meditated on this passage. I just looked up seal in the evangelical dictionary of biblical theology, and this is what was said. And there was two lines in here that I thought, brilliant. Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit seals those who trust in Christ. The Spirit's presence is God's guarantee that believers are owned by him and secure in him. Okay, the Spirit's presence. But here's the problem. How do we know the Spirit's presence? Because we don't always tend We feel the Spirit's presence. This is why sometimes we say, you think that is a believer? And even though you know me, saying, say, nah, I'm not sure. Well, how come we don't know? How come we doubt sometimes our own conversion, our own faithfulness? Okay, if, the, if the Spirit's presence is God's guarantee that believers are owned by him and secured to him, then how do we know we have a seal? So he says, since the Holy Spirit's task is to apply Christ's work to God's people, he anoints believers in Christ the moment they believe. A couple scripture references to back it up. The Father anointed Christ with the Spirit at his baptism, the inauguration of Messianic ministry. But here's the issue. When Jesus was baptized and came up, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It was clear to anyone who saw it. And then he did all this supernatural stuff that you and I have never done. So how do we know we have the seal of the Holy Spirit in us if we don't always tangibly feel it and we don't exercise supernatural faith in the ways that they did in Scripture? He keeps reading. He keeps going. He says that similarly, a believer's baptism marks him or her out as God's. Listen to this. A believer is a secure member of God's family, not because he or she is holding on, but because the spirit is applying the promises about Christ. Let me say this again. A believer is a secure member of God's family, not because he or she is holding on, but because the spirit is applying the promises about Christ. His sealing is merely comprises the initial down payment that anticipates the future full redemption of God's marked possession. Let me let me translate. He's saying, you know, a person has the spirit. When they believe the promises of Scripture. He's not saying that and this is a point. Remember when 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 Peter said to to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the spirit did. So Peter said something that you and I would think was obvious based on mere observation. But God said, "Uh uh-uh, flesh and blood cannot make you see that reality. Only the spirit can. So here's what he's trying to say. When you have the spirit of Christ in you, you actually believe that Jesus is the Christ and you actually place faith in that. You actually do do works of obedience because you want to honor the Lord. That's how you know the spirit is in you. It's not how much you don't sin. It's that when you do sin, you keep going forward because you believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy listen, you and I, in and of ourselves, we would give up. We would give up. We would give up. There is no one who reads their Bible and who does it because it's a cool book. Um, the Bible's not a cool book. That's the spirit that's making you say that. Uh, in reality, listen, when I say the Bible's not a cool book, I'm not down the Bible. I love the scriptures. But what I mean is the Bible is not the book that makes you feel good. It's not the self-esteem manual. The Bible will tell you to stop doing the things that you like to do and to challenge even the way you think about doing some of the things you want to do. The Bible will tell you to go back and ask for forgiveness of people that you don't want to because it's humiliating and it's embarrassing. The Bible will tell you to reject the things that your body so desires. And the fact that you still read it is indicative that the Spirit is in you, leading you to keep coming back. Keep coming to church. Keep praying. You go through tough circumstances. There are people in this room that have, have gone through it and are going through it, and they still trust the Lord. That is not just you holding on by yourself. That is the Spirit holding your arms up like Aaron and him did Moses so that, he could, so that God could punish the people. The Spirit holds on to us. That's why you read. That's why you serve. That's why you pray. That's why you share the gospel. That's why you obey. It's not because you're such a good person. Now, this is why this is important, because many of us put confidence in some of the things that we do. And we're going to find out the spirit was holding us up the whole time, the whole time. This is what he's getting at. A believer is a secure member of God's family, not because he or she is holding on, but because the spirit is applying the promises about Christ. So when you read a psalm and you tear up because you feel like God's ministering to you from that and you're getting confidence in the Lord, that's not because you're just getting it. It's because the spirit, right? That's not because the Bible is a cool book. When you're reading, do not do this, and you feel a sense of guilt like, man, and then you tell someone, hey, this is what's going on, and you set up circumstances to fight against it, that's the spirit. That doesn't happen in and of itself. That's the spirit. That's the seal. And what Paul is making, the point he's making is that, For Abraham and for all of us who have faith, that righteousness that he got from God was due to his faith in God's promises, the very promises that we have to believe. Abraham had faith that God would give him a son. We have faith that God gave us a son. And so it connects. And so we find ourselves in this place, and Paul is trying to make sure they and we understand this isn't by the law or by some act of circumcision. Circumcision was still connected to faith that Abraham had. Do you know this? Do you know Abraham, even though this doesn't happen, right? Abraham could have said, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I'm not getting circumcised. What do you mean? Remember when Moses stood before God and God told him to go down and, and do this And Aaron? Moses was like, look, I'm not even a good speaker, Lord. Can you use somebody else? I mean, he told God this, Right. There's a lot of questions I want to ask God, but I'm not going to ask him, like, I'm not going to tell him I'm not doing something he said do. Right. I may tell him about my actions, but I definitely ain't tell him if he tells me that face-to-face. <laughs> right? There's a difference. with my kids, they, they, sometimes my kids, they talk a little strong with their mom, but then when I walk in the room, it's like, hey, Poppy, here, be quiet. Hey. My wife sometimes will text me and be like, I need to clamp down. Because the kids, she might be in her room, and the kids are playing. They're supposed to be going to bed, and they jumping around and wrestling. And all I got to do is be like, hey, go to bed. Quiet. Out for mail. <laughs> <laughs> My kids know not to mess with their dad, right? You don't mess with God when he tells you to do something. Right, right. And yet Moses did. Abraham could have technically said, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not. I don't know about that God. I mean, he already didn't trust him to have a kid out of his own. So even though Abraham agrees to this rite of circumcision, that was because Abraham had faith in God prior to this circumcision that God's promises were true. So there was still faith being enacted even in the act of circumcision. And what Paul is trying to say is faith is the reason why Abraham was accepted by God. And faith is the reason why you are accepted by God. And so because Abraham's faith has to be imitated, faith is the reason we all are accepted by God. Any works that you do are because God gave you faith and there's righteousness in you, in his spirit, that prompts you to do stuff. Galatians 5.16, 17, it says 5.17, it says this, for the flesh, lust against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. This so that you do not do the things that you wish. So here's what God is saying. Here's the flesh, it wants to do what it wants to do. You get you get the spirit in you, and all of a sudden it stops the flesh from doing what it wants. And now there's this war. This is war. This is battle. Believer, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this: maturity is not how much you don't struggle. Maturity is not the absence of struggle. Maturity is the awareness of struggle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the fight to obey God despite it. Mm-hmm. Maturity will never be measured by a person who doesn't struggle. Right. If a person says, I don't struggle with none of that, cool, then. I don't know who what you believe in. Right. Struggle is the Christian life. Yep. Yep. The spirit and the flesh within us battle. But the spirit will always win. And what I mean is when, it doesn't mean never, we won't ever sin. It just means the spirit is going to stay with us and help help us keep fighting, keep fighting until the Lord calls us home and he returns. And then it's over. But until then, we fight. Man, I'm all over the place. All right. uh, So he gives a, he he asks this question in verse 4, 9 through 11, and then he gives the answer behind the answer in in verse 4. Uh, Chapter 4, 11 11 and 12, listen to this, 11b, second half of b, second half of chapter of verse 11, he says this, this was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who were not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So here's the real purpose of why God gave Abraham that sign of circumcision. Here's the real reason. In Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, you don't have to turn there, but this is what he said to Abraham. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. So here's the reason why he had Abraham get this circumcision, why this all happened. This is the real, this is the answer behind the answer that he gives in verses 9 through 11. It's because Abraham was to be the father of all who believe. Some would be circumcised and some would not be. That's what he meant. So it wasn't just the father of those who would be Jewish by uh, bloodline. They would be sons of Abraham that are by Christ's bloodline, by faith in Jesus Christ. So he's making this point that the real reason that this happened, that Abraham got this circumcision, this cut, was so that he would be the father of those who are the literal descendants of his relatives. The, his, his, he has a son Isaac and then Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and these sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, He's saying it's bigger than that. I'm making you the father of many nations. Jesus confirms this in in John chapter 10. Jesus is going back and forth with the Pharisees. I don't know why these dudes talk to Jesus like that. It was clear that you can't even do the stuff he's doing. He's going back and forth with them. And then Jesus says in chapter in verse 14 and 15, 14 through 16 of John 10. He says that I have sheep that are also not a part of this fold, meaning they're non-Jewish. I have sheep that are also on a part of this fold, and I've come to get them, and they will hear my voice and believe. So from the beginning, there was always, there was always about faith like Abraham that believes God. It was never about your literal rite of circumcision or the Mosaic law or obeying the Ten Commandments. It was always about faith in God like Abraham. And here's why. Because you could be physically circumcised and be an unbeliever. You could be physically circumcised and be an unbeliever. We saw that in, in, in Exodus. You know the book of Exodus. God punished a bunch of people because they disobeyed them. They weren't circumcised. They were unbelievers. Now, we think, man, how does that translate to me? Let me put it in modern-day terms for us. You can grow up in the church or be around the church, know all the stuff, and be an unbeliever. You can grow up in the church. There are people in this room right now that may have grown up in the church and you genuinely don't have faith in the Lord. You're not tripping. You come to church because either there's social pressure to do so or whatever, but when you're outside of this context, you're not really, it doesn't really concern you. You can be around this stuff your whole life and never believe in Jesus. There are people who are professors of theology, Anytime you watch some History Channel joints about archaeology, it's always from Dr. So and so, who has a PhD in antiquity and Bible studies, who is an unbeliever and who just mocks the very things in Scripture. He's actually learned the Bible so he can disprove it archaeologically to disprove the Bible theologically. You can know this stuff and not be a believer. And I'm talking from top to bottom because. Believing this has nothing to do with confessing it. It has to do with living it because you have faith. You can be physically circumcised and not be a believer, you can grow up in a Christian home and not be a believer. There's a friend of mine who's a very well-known theologian in our world. If I said his name, you would know who he was like that. And I'll never forget. I didn't have kids or anything yet when he told me. I was humbled by him saying this, that he grew up, he trained his child to have faith and all this. stuff. And this dude is one of the top theologians in our circles that we would be like, wow. And this last time I talked to him, and we talked about this, His daughter rejected the faith, went to college, and was gone. And I'm in his study, and he's crying. And I remember I was afraid, like, wow, if this dude, if his kids went astray, man, faith is There is no such thing as God has no grandchildren, he has no stepchildren, Jesus has no cousins, none of that. He has brothers and sisters, and God has sons and daughters. That's it. Faith is, you can be, this is why he's bringing this up. He's trying to tell them, look, you're not safe because you got circumcised. You are not safe because you grew up in a Christian home or because you participated in some church activities. This is why this is relevant for us. Set aside all the circumcision and all that and just think about okay, I've I've heard the law, I know this stuff. The true children of Abraham are not those who took circumcision literally. Or who grow up in the church and who hear this stuff, or who can recite the creeds and catechisms, the true children of Abraham are those who have faith and believe God, the promises of God, like He does. And then the proof of that, the seal, the genuine seal of that, is just people are just fighting and obeying, stumbling, fighting, obeying, sinning. When we do it, when we do a series on faith and we get to Hebrews eleven, pfft. the reason why this is important because faith. Sometimes we think of faith as having to have faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But actually, in Hebrews 11, that's not what, what God says faith is. You know, in Hebrews 11:6, 6, you know what he says, what faith, genuine faith is? He says they must believe God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Think about that for a minute. God is saying, genuine faith believes I exist but that I also reward you when you diligently seek me. How many people don't believe that about God? How many people seek God, don't get something they want, and then they think God is mean or doesn't love them or whatever? But he's saying genuine faith, Hebrews eleven six. if you think I'm joking, look it up. God said, I exist and I reward those who genuinely seek me. And you know what? It takes faith to believe that. Because all of us have asked God for things earnestly and did not get them. Did not get them or haven't gotten them yet. And it's easy to think, man, this doesn't even work. And I'm quoting people who have walked away from the faith. This doesn't even work. So it doesn't just take faith to believe in Jesus Christ. It takes faith to believe that he, he, will, he, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That requires faith, especially in the technological age that we live in. Because I can do everything in a matter of seconds with my technology. And God, like, so if I press so the way, if God were an iPhone, you press it, and then depending on what it was and His will for you, you press it, and then it'll work six years from now. That's how God is. You press it, and then it'll work a week from now. You press it, and it's just not working. If God were an iPhone, you press it. And it might take four years. You press it, and it might happen right there. Then you think, oh, man, praise the Lord. <laughs> right? You press it, and then it might do something else that you didn't know you wanted, but that actually you actually benefit from that. Oh, I didn't even want to do that, but thank you. Now I can use that actually. <laughs> if God were an iPhone, it would work a lot slower than our iPhone. And this is why people don't like to wait and trust the Lord. Because we want God to work like an iPhone. God, can you do this? Boom. God, can you do this? Boom. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was about 10 years old. I don't know why I did this. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, I knew my mom had a friend who had told us about the Lord. And I was starting to want, I was thinking about the Lord one day and wondering if I believed it. I remember reading the Bible some, I, was, I read Revelations, the first book I ever read, and I had dreams for like a long time after. <laughs> I called my mom at work one day and said, Mom, I read Revelation, and there was an a, a angel on a horse, and the ground was crackling, and it was lava, and I asked him, am I going to heaven? And he said, I don't know. My, wife, my mom was like, uh, good, son, good. <laughs> She didn't know what to say. It was heavy. That was some theology right there. So one day I'm walking down the street, I was staying with my dad this summer, and I'll never forget this. And I I believe to this day that this was the Lord. I never forget this. I'm walking down the street. I get, and I'm, I'm approaching the corner. And this is all I said. I said, Lord, if I'm really your child, prove it. Now, it was a beautiful day. It was sunny, clouds out. And I've always, actually, this began my fascination with clouds and stuff like that, this moment. I said, God, if I'm really your child, prove it. it again. <laughs> Kid you not to this day. I said that. And I really believe. I do believe that. I believe that God. That was, it was, there was no way that happened. I, went, I checked the weather. There was no, no nothing. No gusts of wind. It was in that moment for five seconds. Stop just like that. And I think to this day I believe in one of God's children. So I think he was confirming that. Now this message is not about say that stuff that we'll get to Gideon in a, in some months later. <laughs> I wasn't even trying to be Gideon. I was just asking the Lord genuinely as a child. And when he did that, I never forgot that. And it began my fascination. But here's what we should need to be fascinated about for us theologically, is that the seal of the spirit and the faith that God gives us is very much like Abraham. And that's what makes us acceptable to God. So then he says this in verse 13 to 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, the Ten Commandments, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So he goes, starts with circumcision, and now he starts with, look, the promise doesn't come through that. Because we heard this last week. If, or two weeks ago, last week, if God, if you work, then you earn, right? If, if, if God, if you're able to work in such a way that you're accepted by God, then you've earned that, like your paycheck. His point is, listen. You can't work enough to be accepted by God. Any of us who have ever had one of those bosses that is never satisfied with what you do, you work hard, you in this assignment, it's, something's not good enough. You work hard, in this assignment, uh, you missed the spot. You ever had somebody do that like you're doing something and you missed one? And you're just like, man, what, what? It's like, it's never good enough, never good enough. Someone's always on you, telling you something you did wrong, always critical, always on you, never good, it's never good, it's never good, never good, never good, never good enough. Well, God's not like that, but it's still never good enough. It's not good enough. The law had a purpose, but that's not what made you accept it to God. The law was supposed to reveal sin and reveal faith that people are actually trying to obey it despite the fact that they fail. So he says, for the promise to Abraham or two of descendants that they would inherit the world was not through the law. The law came hundreds of years later, but through righteousness, it comes by faith in verse 14. If those who are of the law are heirs, meaning they inherit, you inherit the, very, the land, then faith is made empty and the promise is nullified. So faith doesn't mean anything if there's works, if you can earn it. When you get paid, it's not because you demonstrated good faith the last two weeks. It's because you clocked in, you did stuff you were supposed to do, and you clocked out. And by law, they give you that. You don't get paychecks of faith. You get paychecks that you've earned. Like I said last week, let your, let your boss tell you, hey man, you ain't exercised enough faith these last two weeks, so no paycheck. We'll see you on the news, cuffed out, going into, <laughs> texting me like, such and such is in handcuffs. You would be upset, you'd be frustrated, you'd be angry, because you earned that. What well, God, what he's trying to say here is, listen, the promise to Abraham that he's going to bless Abraham was not because he earned it or because his descendants would earn it, whether they were circumcised or not. The promise to bless Abraham was because he had faith when he didn't have to. God told him when he was 75 that he's going to have a son. He's going to have a son, and he's like, man, all right, I believe you. Let's get it. That's what that's the promise. That's what he's trying to get at. He said, because the law produces wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Listen, if there's no law, then there's no need of salvation. That's the point. The law reveals that you need to be saved. The law doesn't make look laws don't make us sin. They just tell us it's sinful to do this. I don't know if you're like this. I'm like this. Pull up. I got to go somewhere. I'm in a rush. Got to go in. I see a sign that says uh, no parking or something, and you just think, man, I'm just gonna run in and run out real quick. I'm just gonna do this real quick. I ain't the only one. Stop looking at me self-righteously. Look, (laughs) so you just think, I'm just gonna run in. I'm gonna be real quick. Actually, this is a better story. This is actually one. I was living in this neighborhood with my mom, and it was our neighborhood. No one ever came in our neighborhood. It was our neighborhood townhouse development in in Gainesburg, Maryland. I parked my car right in front of my house and ran in real quick to get something. Now, technically, in front of my house, it was a sewer, and it was a yellow strip that was, technically, you're not supposed to park where it's yellow. But this is my neighborhood. No one ever comes to my neighborhood. It's a big deal. People know my car, running in and run out, nothing. The neighbor next door, was he just had a chip on his shoulder. And because of that, we were getting sometimes in conflict. And so when you have a chip on your shoulder around me, I'm going to take it off and eat it. So, so we, would go, we would go back and forth. And so what happened was, one day, I parked in front of my house, ran in came back out and here comes this police cruiser coming down vroom, boom and he jumps out and he says excuse me sir is this your call and i'm like uh yeah and i'm thinking like no police never come in this neighborhood what, what are you here for he says yeah this is parked in a in a yellow line so i'm afraid i have to give you a ticket i was like officer uh, you're right absolutely you're right but this is my neighborhood i live right there i just came out i just ran in real quick he said i'm sorry so this is parking in the yellow he gave me a 250 ticket 250 ticket now, there is a sign that says no parking right there. This is my neighborhood. This is my hood. I can pull up on this curb. I got a $250 ticket for that. That sign, the law, doesn't make you sin. It just reveals their consequences. If you park here, that's sinful. And then there are consequences for doing it. This is what he's saying. If there were no law, then there would be no consequences, there would be no need for sin. I'm a curious kid. I used to, we used to walk by the, walk down the street all the time. We always thought like, let's just, we always have to run and laugh and, and run when you were tired. So we'd always go by these signs it's like, beware of dog. No trespassing, beware of dog. And somebody, one of us, would always either climb the fence, <laughs> kick it, or throw something at it. And I kid you not, I've I've read, I've read, I've read and even studied it when I was in elementary school. Jesse Owens, I kid you not, there was one day I beat his record because there were three dogs that came after us. And I was running and laughing at the same time and crying. It It was really weird. It was a run, laugh, cry, fear, funny, push your friend, fall, run, stumble, keep running, get to this wall, jump over it, get to safety, scrape your knee up. To this day, didn't get bit by that dog. But there was something about that sign that made us want to test that. Beware of dog. That's that's what the law is. The law reveals that this is in our hearts and we want to do it. Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me not to do this. Mm -hmm. And we all have that within us. It may not sound as overt. It may sound like, oh, you're just being from the street. No, we all have it in us. The law reveals and it tempts us. It reveals that we're not supposed to do this. Then our desires, we want to do it because we're not supposed to do it. This is what he's saying. The law brings wrath, not grace. Not in contrast to salvation. This is a law where there's no law, there's no transgression. There's no law. The law, if there were no law, if there were no mosaic law, then you wouldn't even know what sin was. There would be no grace. But because the law came, grace comes. Because grace forgives those who break the law when they have the faith of Abraham. This is the point that he's trying to make. Verse 16, last verse, he said, this is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it. To all the descendants, not only those who are not of the law, of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. This is what he's saying. The only promise that comes with the law is you got to keep it perfectly or you didn't keep it at all. So grace is the only guarantee that people will be accepted by God, his grace. And that grace comes in the form of faith. That faith of Abraham is critical. And even though we're so far removed from Abraham and the stuff we're reading culturally is so far away from how we process it, we actually have the same faith of Abraham that all the genuine believers do. This is why the scripture says we're sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham, because we believe the promises. You believe promises of God that you can't see. I mean, think about how many contradictory stories there are about Jesus Christ. Think about how many con- contradictory stories about what he said and what he did. Did he die on the cross or not? Remember that, remember that the Da Vinci Code? You had people like, see, I told you, Jesus, he didn't die on the cross, he married Mary, and they had the king of England or something. And it was just like, that was a novel. What are you talking about? That wasn't his, st- I mean, that's the stuff that's just wild. I remember Christians getting all worried. Oh, man, people are going to think. I was like, "Listen, Jesus has been preserving his church and his people since the beginning. I think we'll handle the Da Vinci Code. I think we'll handle I think the church will still be around after that's over. The Lord preserves his people with the seal of the spirit that came from faith in Jesus Christ, something that is not easy to have. If you think about the stories in the Bible and what we have faith in, man, it's not as easy as we think. The fact that anyone in this room actually believes it is by the grace of God. And the fact that anyone is obedient because they believe it is because of the spirit of God. Sons and daughters, be encouraged. You're not, you're going to fail. You're going to slip up. You're going to doubt, miss the mark, all of it. But the genuine believers in Jesus Christ who have the Holy Spirit in them will keep going. Will keep going. Persevere, endure to the end. Because there's only By the grace of God, through faith, are we accepted by God. Amen? Amen. Father, we went through a bunch of information today, so I pray that if nothing else sticks, if all of it just went over heads and nothing sticks, I pray that this would that we are accepted by you, that we're going to heaven because we have genuine faith in you. Many of us know that, and it's a tried and true promise. We know that to be true. But I pray that you would let that deepen today. That truth doesn't need to be new this morning. It just needs to deepen the truth that we've already believed about it for we know that you could be physically circumcised or grow up in a Christian home and not be a believer. Faith is not coming to church. Faith is trusting promises that you've given, that you do exist and that you reward those who diligently seek you. We pray that you would help us to continue even through the book of Romans as it gets very technical and very hard to grasp and hard to figure out how we fit in this narrative. Because we may not think this way or use this type of language, but I pray that we would be encouraged today that we have the Holy Spirit in us. And that the work that we're doing, the obedience that is there is because not because we're holding on but because your spirit is making the promises in your word about Christ true. The fact that all of us who are genuine believers in this room actually think that when we die we're going to be with you forever is the spirit's work in us because it's absurd otherwise to think that people who commit sins will go to heaven because they have faith in someone else. The fact that we believe that you're going to return one day. The fact that we believe that you died on the cross, that you were fully God and fully man. The fact that we believe that the Bible is actually your word. And that it speaks to us even now. That's all the Holy Spirit's work in us. So may those of us who believe these things to be true, take courage. And yes, we may struggle and we may have our doubts in those moments. We may be disappointed at times in the way things are. We may be disappointed in where our growth is. We may be disappointed in things that we thought you would do. But in all of it, we still have faith. And your spirit still calls us to persevere, continue to trust. So now we, we wrap this up with taking your communion, your supper. We, we will eat this small wafer and drink this juice as a reminder of what you've done for us on the cross. That our faith is actually in something that really happened. It's in a person who really lived and who still lives. May today, may this morning, what we, what we do, what we, what we do now, may this be a reminder of the faith that you've given us for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.